Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome Itamar Novak, founder and general partner of Recursive Ventures, to discuss the devastating events taking place in Israel and the Middle East right now, and how the resiliency of the Israeli people and their technology industry are being united by these atrocious events. Itamar shares his unique experience growing up in a very liberal and left-leaning family in Israel, and how his grandparents set up one of the first kibbutzes in southern Israel, just four kilometers from the Gaza border, and how their lives intersected with many Palestinians in the 1960s and 70s. Itamar and I discuss some of the history leading up to the most recent events, and how the events that took place on October 7th are similar to 9-11, but multiplied by 10x for all Israeli citizens and the specific impacts it had on his family directly. Lastly, we discuss how the events taking place in the Middle East are impacting the global Jewish community and the incredibly polarizing views and hatred coming out of our educational institutions. I hope you find this episode insightful and rooted in facts and not anger or bias. But before we jump into this week's interview with Itamar, we welcome back to the tank John Ruffalo to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. All right, John, welcome back to the tank for another episode of our news rundown segment. You know, we have to obviously start to discuss the devastating events that have taken place in Israel and the implications that are spreading terrorism and evil around the rest of the world and the way that it's making a lot of people feel. So first off, I have to say, as people can probably guess with the last name Cohen, that I am Jewish. Uh, And even though I am not Israeli, I, along with so many of my Jewish friends around the world, are deeply affected by these events taking place. And I think it would be helpful to maybe just spend a few minutes to explain why this moment in time is very significant and that people cannot turn a blind eye to it, just like nobody turned a blind eye to 9-11, which I never thought we would see again in my lifetime. And I'm just not sure you know, how others are thinking about this. So I have to ask someone like you, a non-Jewish person, but obviously a very strong and resilient Canadian with Italian roots and heritage, how are you feeling during this time? There is the global view that I have in the Canadian view. Let's start on the Canadian view. You know, I grew up you know, very closely in Jewish, next to Jewish neighborhoods, went to to university uh, where half the class was Jewish and the other half was Italian. And we would joke uh, that you know we're all part of the same corporation, but different divisions. The folks who I grew up with strongly support Canadian values. And when I see some of the stuff that I am seeing right now, I, I am absolutely disgusted and horrified that bringing the hatred in our own nation is not what we believe Canada is about. And we cannot tolerate any of this stuff. And, you know, I just sent out not that long ago a, a tweet. The police better have zero tolerance and so with the government right now, there's a lot of bad behavior going on and it's not being shut down. And I think it it is incumbent upon everyone to shut this behavior down because today's Jews, tomorrow, who the hell knows? So this cannot be tolerated. On the global level, this is presenting a different issue. And I think it still remains to be seen. But Let's just use my suspicion hat, and this is certainly not founded totally in fact, but let's just say that Iran has been, you know, behind the impetus behind this action, certainly funding it. Well, the biggest thing that I believe that they were concerned about 
was the Saudi, the potential Saudi-Israeli accord that would mirror what what Egypt uh, uh, had done. You're referring to the Abraham Accords. Correct. This is an interesting way on how to disrupt it because at the end of the day, the Middle East is only about Saudi versus Iran and they're at each other's throats. And what they did not want to see is uh, Saudi Arabia side with Israel. So all of a sudden you have a power imbalance. What causes me even greater consternation is that there are rumors, and again, they're totally rumors, that the Russians were also involved with the Iranians because the Iranians were supporting the Russians. And they want to take the attention away from the, from the Ukraine. And now you're going to see the United States. Basically, there's going to be lots of pressure, and the United States is going to say, well, let's go and move and support offshore in, in the waters off of Israel to make sure that Hezbollah or Iran doesn't get involved. Well, guess what? Ukraine gets exposed. Long story short, you've heard me say this, Matt, a number of times. With the U.S. retreating as the super cop from around the world, the world is going to go into a major shit show. And all we're doing is reverting back to the shit show before World War II. And it's all playing out live right in front of us. It is. And I, I've studied history a little bit more than probably some people of this generation, just like you have studied it. And it definitely doesn't repeat itself, but it's it's rhyming very closely right now to a lot of the things that our grandparents and parents have obviously had to see. You know, we are a VC startup technology focused podcast, so I don't want to delve too much into the geopolitical implications, but just talking about sort of the implications for the technology sector, we obviously know how many tech companies have offices in Israel, Google, Facebook, NVIDIA, IBM, Oracle, Microsoft, the list goes on. And a lot of them have lost employees or have seen their employees being taken hostage. So this is not just a localized issue anymore. More than 500 VC funds, including Mavericks and Ripple, have both come out supporting Israel, along with many of our VC friends in Canada, but also a lot of US firms, Bain Capital, Bessemer, GGV, are significant signatories condemning the acts of terrorism and calling for the global investor community to support Israel and their tech ecosystem which happens to represent 20% of the country's GDP. So I guess I have to ask you, you know, why do you think it's so hard, though, for some people to come out against terrorism, anti-terrorism, anti-Hamas, not taking sides on pro-Palestine, pro-Israel? That's not what it's about. Why do you think it's so hard for some corporations in Canada to come out and speak, their, you know, speak the truth? Two things. I think people don't understand the difference between Hamas and, and the Palestinians number one, and, and understanding how that had evolved. So they're reluctant to chastise Palestinians, not understanding, you know, the, this, this, this third party enemy, essentially. Yeah. And, but you know, the part that really bothers me, it's this fear of being canceled. We have gotten in this society so extreme of telling the truth in fear that it's the, uh, what's the right word? Tyranny of the minority, is that it? Tyranny of the minority. It's going to its most extreme lengths. If someone disagrees with you, you know what? 
fuck off. Who cares? I don't care if you disagree, but state your view, state your view, you know, with fact, uh, with hopefully data and, and it's your view, but people are so afraid of the potential backlash as are corporations. Now, you know, on the corporations, I know you got to watch out that, you know, when you back certain issues that perhaps the vast majority of your employees don't even care about. But if you are an employer that's employing Jewish folks, particularly in Canada, I've had a number of discussions over the past day or two that folks are very afraid of their kids. Like we need the power of business, et cetera, to inflict the power on the politicians in particular to say, this is not acceptable. We have a situation where an MPP of the NDP party is saying the most despicable, disgusting things. And their own party leader uh, does not throw this person out of caucus. What is this saying about the NDP, for example? You're telling me through your actions exactly what you believe, not what comes out of your mouth. That's the part that really disgusts me. Yeah, I think people also are uh, using the veil of an organization to protect themselves because they're fear of the repercussions. And we saw, you know, the CEO of Apollo Asset Management, Mark Rowan, calling out UPenn leadership and Bill Ackman calling out Harvard demanding the leaders quit over the anti-Semitic remarks coming out of the organizations there and saying, hey, if you say these things, use your name, use your name. Don't just try to cover yourself in the veil of Harvard. And that was a, a great call out, I thought, by Bill Ackman. I have been enjoying a lot of the stuff that he's been doing. For what it's worth, uh, you can check my, t- I just, I called out earlier York University. I am on the Dean's Council for the Schulich School of Business and I'm an alumnus there. I find it reprehensible. I fully expect that I'm going to place a call to the dean of the university and just saying, like, dudes, this is not about freedom of speech. Per se. I am a huge supporter of that, but th- this has got into hate mongering. And we got laws. So don't create new laws, just simply enforce what we already have. Right, exactly. I think the social responsibility that people are trying to avoid is no longer capable. You have to take some form of humanity into consideration when thinking about these issues. So I guess the last question I'll ask before we move on is, what do you think tech companies and founders uh, and people who think they're so far removed from this situation, being on the other side of the pond and thinking this is just a localized Israeli you know, Middle Eastern issue should be doing and should be standing up for in this situation? You know, I'll, I'll give you two responses. Number one, irrespective of whether you're in the tech community and and, and, and it, this is a massive impact to the Israeli community, but it's more about the standing up for the humanity of it. It doesn't matter whether you're in the tech community or not. The second thing I will say is, you know, what one of the first reactions that I did have when I started hearing about the infiltrations. What happened to the incredible Israeli defense technology that I thought was impenetrable? And one of the things, Matt, you and I had talked about just a month ago is with the world much more dangerous, are we going to see the rise of dual-use technologies starting off with a military application and being tested in the field 
and then being used, you know, in a consumer uh, usage. I think in Israel is one of the greatest leaders in the world of this space, and they even failed. I see those technologies rising very, very quickly and being funded very dramatically. Absolutely. I mean, we don't think about that a lot here in Canada because we don't have a lot of, uh, fortunately, the issues they have to deal with on a constant basis. But if they have issues that are being penetrated that they thought they were so protected from, why can't it happen anywhere else in the world? And so I think it is a wake-up call as well to security, which I know you've been talking about and investing in from your team at Mavericks. Okay, we got to move on to some positive news here. The government of Canada announced the recipients of their first inclusive growth stream for the 50 million Vicky pool. And I'm proud to say that Ripple was awarded seven half million in funding for our newest fund three vehicle. Congrats. Thank you. Um, you know, I will say that this was a long process. Uh, we applied over a year ago, went through grueling interviews and due diligence processes, but it is a great step forward in supporting the underrepresented and the Canadian VC and startup ecosystem and the next generation of founders here. You know, the question I have for you is people have always said, you know, government should not be potentially supporting private enterprises. I think this is a great example, not because we're recipients of it, but because of the process we had to go through was quite grueling, um, I have to say. And I do think the impacts will be significant. But what do you think about sort of these pools of capital being allocated to these specific resources? Well, you know, I was an early architect, uh, actually borrowing off of the Israeli Yasma program back in the uh, early 2000s. And this was the basis when I was uh, uh, heavily involved with the CBCA's Government Relations Committee, drafted what was absolutely essential uh, for Canadian VCs could just not get any significant uh, LP commitments. The reason why it made sense back just after the financial crisis is Many of the VCs were saying, hey, look, I could get $75 million of private capital, but you know, to be a sustainable fund, I really need to be at 100 or 125. And the whole idea originally behind the program was to give it a little bit of an extra shot of, ad of adrenaline. But in no way was this intended to be a program that just basically maintained venture funds if they can't otherwise be sustainable with private capital. And the biggest criticism today is folks that have been involved in the program, you know, on on the first round still claim that without this support they would not be able to remain sustainable. You know, the the response by many folks is if that statement is true, are you really making money? Are you really doing something good? for the taxpayers. And I think that now that we're going to have about 10 years of data, I think now people can go back and look and really understand, has this program delivered what it was expected to deliver? Yeah, I think the numbers are there. And I think it is absolutely easy for people to actually look if they want to take the time to look at the value that it brings and also the returns that it generates for the government. So we couldn't be happier and more proud and excited to deploy the capital into more underrepresented founders. You know, one thing that came out was a study that was released about how U.S. tech workers are paid 46% more on average than their Canadian counterparts. Now, this study from the Diaz Public Policy Institute at Toronto Metropolitan, also Ryerson, found that typical tech employee in Canada makes $83,700 a year compared with $122,600 
brewers in the US. And it was accounting exchange rates and cost of living and blah, blah, blah. I do think that there was someone who I saw tweeted about what's the break even? It was around 130,000 Canadian uh, because health insurance is such a huge cost in the US. Plus, the cost of living is different in certain cities. If you want to say downtown Toronto, sure. But not everyone in the tech community has to live in downtown Toronto. What do you think about this? And do you think this study actually will make a difference on what companies are willing to pay their employees here? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure it can do very much. Well, I guess, are you even shocked by this? I'm not. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if this is a surprise by anybody, like get your head out from underneath uh, a rock for the last 10 years. This has been going on in the 30 plus years I've been involved in the industry. This has always been the issue because they're bigger companies. They pay more. So, you know, no big shock. So what is different? What's different now is our cost of living in some of our Canadian cities that that dominate the tech community, Vancouver, Toronto, lesser extent Montreal, because the cost of living there is not as extreme. But over the last five years, we have seen the housing costs go up dramatically. Exactly what you had said. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to live in downtown Toronto per se. But however, it is a concern. This has been a concern in Vancouver for a long time in that it was so expensive for the workers to live near their offices. And if you want people to come into the office, how, how do you do this? I think this is a much more complex problem. I know the city of Toronto is very much working on the housing issue. And in particular, we had some pretty archaic rules. Uh, you couldn't increase density and, and there was requirements for only single uh, family homes. And the whole low rise multi-res type of market in Toronto was was never approved. It is now. And I think as they try to add more supply to the market, hopefully that could start to soften the blow. The problem is, though, as I've been told, the lack of supply is so egregious, it will take many, many years for it to even get remotely close to catching up. Yeah, absolutely. I think like, you know, the one thing I would say about this report that we all know is the case before it even came out was, you know, you've got these huge packages that are being paid to U.S. employees uh, for, you know, a million dollars a head for AI talent, you know, versus maybe in Canada, they're not being paid that much. The competition is also much harder there. And so if you are a Canadian tech employee and you can get a job working for a U.S. company based in Canada, that's the double win. You, you, you don't have to pay for your health insurance, but you get paid in U.S. You know, compensation ranges. I think that's the win and that's the takeaway. So maybe people will start doing that. I do know a lot of people who work for U.S. tech companies based in Toronto, and they do love that uh, arbitrage, if you will. But I don't think it's really apples to apples just going straight up Canada, no, U.S. No. tech employees. But, but the, the, downs, the downside, of course, though, is that if there is a big win, the equity value that you would get at as you know, being in the home jurisdiction is far greater than being in a subsidiary, number one. Number two, and in my prior career, did this all the time and we saw it right now, when the home country head office is having financial issues, guess who they cut first? And it's not the home country. No, absolutely. And speaking of cuts, you know, there was a pretty significant cut at a company that was doing and seems to still be doing quite well, which was Hopper, which cut about 30% of its full-time staff in an effort to reach profitability. 
Were you a little shocked by this or were you thinking everyone in the world is doing it? Why should not a company, even though they're do- doing very well, reported 500 million in revenues being you know, forced or able to do a cut like this? Yeah, I'd say I, I, it, it did take me by surprise because by all accounts, you know, Hopper is doing very well. Uh, but 30% is a very meaningful cut uh, for the company. I, I know that it was stated in the newspaper that, you know, he's you know, potentially preparing for an IPO, which would make, you know, lots of sense. But it's not like they have a lot of employees either. I, if I remember, was it around 700-ish employees in a 30% cut? Yeah, so this was a 250 cut uh, that they did this time for the 30%. And that uh, they cut 50% in the beginning of the pandemic, which was 340 employees. So back of the envelope math, yes, around 700. So you know what surprises me then is if you're generating $500 million of revenue, you divide that by the number of employees. That's, you know, what is that? Is that a million? It's a million dollars. Yeah, it's quite good. <laughs> How are you not at profitability? Yeah. So that's a part that I didn't quite understand, but, you know, Frederick's a smart guy. So, uh, you know, good for him. I think the takeaway maybe is that you can't just look at top line revenue and then and a, a tech company and say, assuming 80% of that moves down into gross margin. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing here is that we're seeing a lot of these tech enabled companies that don't have traditional 80% plus SaaS margins uh, or re- repeatable recurring revenue, but are burning a lot more. And therefore, you have to really actually look under the hood and say, okay, yes, there's 500 million of revenue not recurring. What are the margins? And the headcount's quite bloated to support that. Therefore, the cuts need to happen, right? Yes. And and it's a great point. This is a real bugaboo for me is that I, I am still astonished at the number of people that confuse what does SaaS really mean? What is really an ARR? What is a reoccurring business? And just what is a, as you had indicated, a tech-enabled business? And people do not look at the quality of the revenues. And exactly what I just described, it's likely that like, that would be an astonishing 30% cut if that was a SaaS business at 500 million, but it's not a SaaS business. So that's why I say I'm not shocked, but I was just a little surprised just because of the scale of the business. Yeah. Well, thanks again for joining us in the Tank Day, John, to brighter and safer and happier times ahead. Thanks again. Thank you. Now let's jump into the tank for today's guest, Itamar Novak from Recursive Ventures. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Itamar. Thanks for having me, Matt. This is not our traditional podcast. Uh, I know that uh, as a podcast host, you know we're trying to bring uh, uplifting stories and conversations that people can think about uh, on their walks with their dog, you know, on long drives to maybe help make them better entrepreneurs, better investors, better founders. But I think as a host uh, of this podcast, I needed to bring someone like you onto the podcast to discuss the situations that are going on in Israel and the Middle East right now, and it's just too hard for the global community to ignore it, uh, no matter how far removed one might feel right now. And so with the rise in anti-Semitism and the increasing division between our Jewish communities, I wanted to have this conversation with you, who is someone who is from Israel, not currently living there now, but who has obviously been deeply impacted by these atrocities and the events that have taken place, and also someone who's in VC and technology, so that we can try and bridge the gap between our tech and VC friends here in the US and Canada. 
So we might find some ability to touch what's going on. So maybe just to start off, we can give a brief background to our listeners on yourself, your upbringing as an Israeli child, you know, how your life uh, has obviously gone through changes and moved over to the US. And then obviously we'll get into the devastating events that are uh, affecting you personally. Yeah, thanks for all that, Matt. I'm kind of sad to be on the pod here under these circumstances. I hope we get a chance to also talk about, you know, building companies and venture capital firms because that's what I do day to day. But I'm I'm very happy and thankful to be here today and be able to share my family's story and kind of provide, I hope, a more balanced lens. I am Israeli. But I, I do have a more, I think, balanced view that I hope uh, the listeners here would appreciate looking forward to the conversation and sort of helping people better understand some of the facts on the ground back in Israel. So born and raised in Israel, even though I, I spent uh, a couple of years uh, in my early childhood in New York, uh, my parents took me over, but I pretty much spent my entire life in Israel up to you know my early 30s. And then I moved over to the U.S. I've been here in the San Francisco Bay Area for the last 13, 14 years. Uh, after spending a lot of time in the Israeli tech scene, sort of going back and forth between Tel Aviv and, and Palo Alto, if you will. I've had the, in Israel, I've, I've had an interesting upbringing. I was one of the uh, so-called peace kind of teens. Uh, you know, I attended the, the demonstration for peace in which Rabin was assassinated back in the 90s. My grandfather, which we're, we're going to talk about soon, is actually a peace activist. He was a Knesset member you know, on the side of Mapam, which kind of no longer exists, but it really represents the left wing, the left side of, of Israeli politics. He was, he was um, a Knesset member in the 70s and uh, the 80s, and he's sort of a, a, a peace activist, right, that tried to do everything that he can to help sort of bridge the gap between Israelis, Palestinians, and the Arab world. So that's kind of my up. That, that lens of like, at the end of the day, peace is something that you do with enemies, not with people that you love. And clearly there are differences uh, and gaps and many hurts on both sides. But this is where you, that's where you create peace. Peace is again, you know, created between enemies. That's sort of my upbringing. And then just to add a little bit more on top of that in terms of what I've been personally doing to help facilitate dialogue in the Middle East between the different sides. I'm also uh, one of the uh, early members slash founders of a, a camp in Burning Man called Cosmic Camels, which is really trying to bring that dialogue into Burning Man, bring you know Israelis, Palestinians, and the rest of the Arab world together under the kind of shared values of Burning Man to really help people see each other eye to eye. We're all from the Middle East. We actually have a lot that we share in common. For me, it's kind of a, a, a little bit of a, of a sort of a side project where I'm trying to contribute because, again, I believe we need to find ways to, to create a dialogue between the different sides here. We need to get to some sort of a resolution in the sort of Israeli-Palestinian conflict and in the overall Israel versus the Arab world. You know, we've made a lot of progress with the Abraham Accords, but the work is far from being done. So that's my little contribution to try to help uh, where I can. So, so really, that's the lens that I'm coming into this, and you know, coming into this, this with this message to to this audience, and and sort of happy to talk more about what I've seen, what I've personally gone through, and also 
again, I think it's really important that we stick to facts and not let some of the fake news and confusing messages out there like confuse us as we think through this very long-standing conflict, what the two sides are basically yeah, saying. Yeah, absolutely. Here. Yeah. So just setting the context of where you're coming from, you know, is obviously a long history in your family from being on the left side, the peacemaking side for Israeli and Palestinians and the entire conflict between, you know, the Arab nations and Israel. Uh, and you've been doing that for pretty much all your life. Uh, but maybe give us a sense of how you've been personally impacted, because I know you shared with me before, you know, your grandparents live on Kibbutz Magen. You know, I've been down to Sterod, I've been to Ashkelon, I know exactly how close these places are. So maybe give uh, our audience an understanding of exactly what you went through on October 7th. It's not just October 7th, it's still ongoing. Israel has went through, I mean, some folks have framed it as 10-7. Israel has just gone through the equivalent of 9-11 on steroids 10x bigger. The most horrendous, horrific terrorist attack probably ever inflicted on a country in recent history. That's what Israel has gone through and is going through today. The mourning uh, of the loved one lost, the kidnapped still in the hands of the Hamas. To be clear, that did not end on 10-7. It just got started. We're still in the middle of this. And by the way, I think there's a Unfortunately, a significant likelihood that this is far from over, and we'll talk more about that as we as we work through where we're at. But going back to my personal story, my four grandparents, which are roughly in their 90s, early 90s, and there's four of them because Jewish Ashkenazi, they got divorced and remarried. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, they are the founders of Kibbutz Magen. Kibbutz Magen, M-A-G-E-N, you know, was started by them, uh, ideologists, communist ideologists, I should say, in a way, because that's really some of the foundation of the kibbutz. But of course, 60, 70 years have gone by and they're not really communist. But um, they founded the kibbutz, an undisputed Israeli territory, right? In the middle of the desert. Their vision was to create a community, a just community for everybody in the middle of the desert. And that's what they did. They built kibbutz again. It ended up that they built it four kilometers away from the border to Gaza. That was not the intention when they built it in the 50s. They just found a random piece of stretch in the desert. Some of them are Holocaust survivors. And they, they spent many, many years, you know, trying to do their best to treat their Palestinian friends from Gaza. Back in before, you know, before Israel gave back Gaza to the Palestinians in 2006, Hamas was really a very marginal figure. And in the political stand, it was really the PLO that was there and was supposedly more of a counterpart to the Israeli side extending their hand in peace. So this whole Hamas and the phenomena is actually pretty recent in the grand scheme of things. So in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, my grand grandparents were employing people from Gaza, treating them extremely fairly, extremely well, and at times treating them as friends. They had people from Gaza visit them all the time. The level of conflict that we see now is not really there in the 60s and 70s and 80s to the same extent. So this is what they spend their lives doing. Uh, I don't know how much our listeners here know about the recent attacks, but there's 22, 25 kibbutzes in that area on the border to Gaza. And out of the 25, I think maybe only two were not significantly impacted. We're talking about Hamas terrorists going house by house, 
village by village, murdering as many people as they can put their hands on, raping women, killing kids in, in front of their parents, kidnapping civilians, including a Holocaust survivor that's now confirmed that there is over 30 kids under the age of 18 kidnapped, held in Gaza. We have horrific and real verified videos, photos, and testimonials of, you know, entire families burned alive. The worst thing that the Jewish people has basically seen, have basically seen since the Holocaust. And my grandparents just went through that. Luckily, they survived. And it's a little bit of a crazy story. It's actually all over the news. Every kibbutz has a group of civilians that have, you know, arms in case of, you know, penetration, infiltration into the kibbutz. Kibbutz Magen, my grandparent kibbutz, had, uh, has, you know, 15 people who are, they've got weapons. Again, civilians, they've got weapons, they've got vests. And one of them who kind of leads the security in the kibbutz, every time the Hamas would shoot missiles into the area, and, and just to give you the context here, Hamas has shot tens of thousands of missiles into the you know, settlements, the villages around the Gaza area over the last 10, 15 years. Tens of thousands of missiles. This is a continuous, ongoing campaign, military campaign, where they're shooting missiles at civilian just, targets. Just giving our listeners a sense of like waking up every day, walking out of your house, <laughs> thinking you're going to work, and then seeing a missile or hearing a missile or hearing a siren going off. You have to go run into a safe house or a shelter. And then go back to your normal day. You know, when I was in Steyrot, you see these empty missiles just sitting on the ground. You see holes in the roof. Like, it is commonplace to have that part of their daily routine. And, and the level of, of trauma and PTSD that is now exhibited on the Israeli side is unprecedented. Because you're looking at people that have lived in that stretch of land for the last 10, 15 years under constant missile bombardment. And, and I have all the sympathy for what's happening in Gaza. It is horrendous as well in many ways. Of course, civilians living there are, you know, going through hell at times. But you have to understand that this is happening on both sides. This is not just a Palestinian people, you know, suffering. Everybody in that area is suffering. And it's also happening on the Israeli side because these people are under constant daily Missile shoot daily, every day, like you mentioned, Matt, every day that they step outside their house, they know that there is a significant chance that by the end of the day, there will be an alarm and the missile will get fired. Now, luckily, Israel has Iron Dome and can stop a significant percentage of those missiles, but it's not guaranteed. And they still blow through and they still, you know, kill people pretty frequently. So that's the kind of the context. So 6.30, 7 a.m., October 7th. Literally, you know, 12 days ago, right? Hasn't been that long. My grandparents' kibbutz. So this guy, um, Baal, he's now all over the news. He, every time the Hamas shot missiles, he would go up a hill in the kibbutz. And he would look down with binoculars trying to understand if the Hamas is coming. Now, people in the kibbutz weren't taking him very seriously. They were sort of, you know, sometimes even laughing at him saying, ah, you know, what are you talking about? It's just missiles. We get the missiles every day. There's no way they're going to break through the IDF defenses. You're crazy. Like, but every time, again, tens of thousands of missiles, every time the Hamas would shoot missiles, this guy would go up on the hill and he would start looking down and seeing if the Hamas is coming because he knew, he knew what would happen if they come. Guess what? On the horrible, murderous morning, they came and he was there 
and he saw them early and he, he alerted the other 14 people to what is happening. They all jumped, pick up their weapons, pick up their vests and went to protect the kibbutz. They fought bravely. Bao, the guy that sounded the alarm, lost his leg. He was seriously injured, but he is alive. Another member uh, was killed and they were able to deflect, basically stop the terrorists from entering the kibbutz. The kibbutz was not significantly damaged. It's a miracle they came out as alive because in the next kibbutz over near Oz, it is reported that over 100 people were murdered and over 30 people were kidnapped. More than half of the kibbutz was burned to the ground. This is the next kibbutz over. This unit, this small unit, um, again, of civilians, basically saved the entire kibbutz. My grandparents were uh, in a shelter inside their house this whole time. I was on the phone with them, and I'm hearing the shooting in the background, shooting bombs flying, a war zone, in the middle of this very peaceful kibbutz with these very peaceful people that are actually peace activists in many ways. And they're just like, you know, they're in there fearing for their lives. Again, they were rescued. The next day, my mother talked with my grandmother, and she said that, you know, the Jewish people, like, we haven't felt this way since, you know, we hid from the Nazis in the 40s. This was the same feat. Just horrendous. I mean, me and my family here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we... Naturally, we weren't able to sleep for a few days, just calling. And they were on the phone. They were available for WhatsApp all the time. And it's like hiding in their house, not knowing if a Hamas terrorist is going to come and massacre them. Like many of their friends in other kibbutz around them were massacred. Again, Hamas went house by house, village by village, and massacred, shot, slaughtered seniors, parents, kids, Anybody they can put their hands on. So just, just to be clear, them. like, so you, you say that there's members and, you know, I'm so thankful to hear that your grandparents are obviously uh, alive and um, unfortunately a lot of their friends are not there to say the same, but just to give our audience some idea, like everyone, most uh, adults are uh, trained in the IDF from the ages of 18 to I believe 21. Uh, and then they're in reserves until they're 45. It's not like everyone who's a civilian in Israel carries a gun on them, <laughs> right? It's, it's actually a very anti-gun state. It's not like a lot of these people are able to protect themselves if terrorists come by. So it was a very unarmed destruction of civilian life, even though these 15 individuals had some guns. Over 1,500 have been murdered and uh, over 2,000 are wounded. Out of the 1,500 murdered, only around 250, 300 reported, it, the numbers could change, were of the armed forces were IDF, and that includes civilians who picked up arms. The rest were unarmed civilians, including over a hundred kids murdered, seniors murdered. The vast, vast majority of people that Hamas slaughtered here were not soldiers. They were completely peaceful, unharmed civilians. This is true terror. Indistinctive terror. They strike, they came to kill as many Israelis as they can. And by the way, not only Israelis, two dozen, over two dozen Americans were slaughtered, 10 or more are kidnapped, and there's people from all over the world that were murdered. Here's a crazy, just a crazy notion. Some Thai people from Thailand are employed in and around the Gaza Strip area in farming. And the terrorists came and they slaughtered Thai people as well, and they kidnapped Thai people. It's like, 
come on, like, okay, so you're a Hamas terrorist. You go over to the fields, like the farming, and you see a bunch of Thai people. Like, what do they have to do with this? This atrocity is unheard of. This has not happened in our world in recent history. This is killing for the sake of killing, slaughtering as many people as they can, regardless of whether they're armed, unarmed, Israeli, non-Israeli. It's just kill and 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 murder as many people so, as you, you can. So you know, it's pure barbarianism. We all absolutely are are, are complete shocked in our ear. Even sitting here in Toronto, Canada, you know, obviously our friends are all you know part of the community, and we've all been sort of unable to sleep. And just like you are with direct you know connections to family, we have family in Tel Aviv and Herzliya, and, and friends who are stuck in, in shelters as well, living through it as well. So you know, you say we're twelve days out, but let's kind of go through a little bit more of like now the responses that are happening and what you're hearing and seeing and how. A lot of the community and the unification of Israel is responding to this because to provide some context to our listeners, like Israel was pretty dislocated leading up to this, right? Like 90% of the population hated Netanyahu, the politics, the right-wing conservative politics and everything leading up to this. So, But obviously everything flipped uh, in, in a quick period of time to unify the country. So walk us through for our listeners to understand, like, what does it mean to be called up to be a reserve? How are you hearing about your friends reporting, friends who are running businesses, entrepreneurs, all the family members you know? What is happening and, and what is their sort of progression through being a civilian one day and then going right to the front lines the next? So I don't know if some of our listeners um, kind of caught wind of the uh, no, we're not okay campaign. I think it's important to emphasize that Israel is an extremely small country, you know, eight to nine people, including two million Arabs in the country, right? Which... Uh, hopefully will continue to live peacefully among us for many, many years. Because it's such a small country and because so many people have been murdered, taken hostage, or seriously wounded, this event has impacted, this war has impacted almost every single Israeli in Israel and outside of Israel. And it's also impacted many of our Jewish brothers overseas. So almost everybody has somebody they know that is impacted by this. And they're not just, just talking about being called as a uh, you know, the, into the reserve army. I'm talking about people actually murdered and wounded. What this has done within the Israeli society and, and you know, there's a couple of millions of Israelis living abroad like me, is it's really completely changed our perception of what's happening inside Israel on multiple fronts. First of all, this is a huge intelligence and military fuck-up. There's no better word. And I hate to use F-words, but this is unprecedented. Israel was completely caught off guard from an intelligence tactical standpoint. It's a huge disappointment in a country that prioritizes, you know, the security of its people first. Because to be clear, if Israel doesn't do that, Israel will get wiped away. Those countries, those people around us are infested with folks that want to kill every Jew, every single Jewish or Israeli person that they see. This is, this is the reality. And sometimes folks here in the U.S. and in Canada, they can't believe that there is such a significant body of people surrounding Israel who just really want us all dead. That's what they want. I'm not saying it's everybody, but there's a lot of them. And if Israel didn't have a strong army and intelligence to defend itself, that is exactly what would happen. They would try to slaughter and kill as many as they can. It is the truth. It is completely counterintuitive to how we feel in the West world. It's like, what? Don't you just want peace? And well, some of them do, but gosh, many of them don't. They just want to stay. So Israelis over the you know 75 years of the country has existed have really relied 
and the sense of security that the army and intelligence offers. That's the only way we can continue to exist and live in the Middle East. And now part of that promise, part of that trust is broken. So it's very fundamental. It is shaking the very ground on which Israelis and the state of Israel is, was, was founded on, right? Like the, we need to provide the security. How did we fail stopping, you know, this one of the most horrendous terrorist attacks in history? How did? So that's thread number one, right? It's just one thing that's happening in the Israeli society. And the other side is this deep understanding and realization that if we don't unify and if we don't push back hard on what just happened, that's it. It's the end. Israel will eventually get overrun. Clearly, there's way more Muslims and Arabs that want to hurt Israel than there are Israelis. So we're outnumbered, right, in a way. And again, I'm not saying all Muslims and all Arabs seek the destruction of Israel, but there's quite a few of them, and their numbers are great. So this unification is coming from the point of view of, like, we understand now more deeply than ever that we need to unify as a country against a common enemy, or we're lost. So that's the second thing that's happening, and in that context, all the political significant friction, I mean, we've gone through a lot over the last eight, ten months in Israel, with between right and left, and, and Netanyahu trying to overhaul the judicial system and gain take more power and control to his hands, potentially trying to become a dictator, if you if you believe what the left-wing side is saying. All that was pushed aside to focus on our joint right. survival. Not forgotten, but just put to the back burner for now. Correct. There will be time in the future to work through this and understand who failed where and what role do politicians and politics play have played in that failure. It will happen. That's what happened after 1973, after Yom Kippur. Significant parts of the military intelligence and political system resigned, as they should have, when it was uncovered that they didn't do their jobs. And I think similar things could happen. But that is set aside. Now Israel is unified to mourn its dead and protect the country because what we're seeing now could be just the tip of the iceberg. And that's something that's really important to emphasize. I think by the Biden administration understands that, which is why you're seeing two carriers in the region. But what we're seeing now could just be the tip of the iceberg in the beginning of something that much greater. So the Israelis understand this in the most profound way because they're in the center of all this. And they've lived through this for the last yeah, 75 years. I mean, we really hope that it doesn't increase to obviously what everyone has uh, been talking about. You know, that would be devastating for humanity around the entire region and, and potentially globally with the U.S. issuing travel warnings as well to anywhere in the world that's becoming more and more contentious. Uh, you know, but talking about resilience and the unity of the Israeli people, you know, can you explain, given that you've uh, obviously been involved in the, the tech and entrepreneurial community, you know, how that community, the tech community has responded to this crisis? You know, what role, you know, technology, obviously cybersecurity and, you know, surveillance and security has always been a huge role in the Israeli ecosystem. 20% of the GDP is created from the technology sector. You know, how has the tech community tried to rally and support the uni unification of Israel during this time? I mean, the tech community, like the rest of the community, has basically rallied in every way that 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 they can, uh, internally supporting the soldiers on the on the front lines, helping. Uh, you know, my 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 grandparents, for example, uh, they were 
finally evacuated by the IDF to the Dead Sea to a hotel, hotel there every day. Dozens of people from all over Israel go to them, uh, go to the hotel, try to, you know, shower them with gifts and, and spend time with them. And, you know, they get free spa passages at the hotel. Like, really, everybody is really kind of trying to help those people from the southern part of Israel who have been significantly impacted. We've also seen initiatives around, you know, in Israel and around the globe in support of um, Israel in this very dire time. I know you and I were part of a, a, a group uh, of VCs that were really focused on making sure that as VCs and as leaders in our communities, our voices heard in support of Israel. And we did a, a, a significant petition. I think we've had over 700 different VC firms sign in support of Israel. Of Israel. And, and, and I think it's worth emphasizing just a little bit because I'm seeing a lot of concepts and ideas out there that are honestly almost repulsive to me, you can be in support of the Palestinian cause in a two-state country and absolutely at the same time still condemn the vile, horrible acts, terrorist acts of the Hamas. Hamas is not the Palestinian people. It's a significant part of the Palestinian people. There is a lot of support for Hamas within Gaza. To be clear, they blend, they fade into the the overall population. It's not two disconnected things. But I don't think Hamas really represents the Palestinians' people and what they want. And you can be in support, again, of a two-state country and still condemn the Hamas. And people keep confusing that. So what we've been doing in VC communities and in startup communities globally is try to get that message across of like the atrocities that were done here, the vile terrorist acts that, were, that happened here, are inhuman. If you're not condemning them, you do not have a moral lens. So that's one sort of work that's being done. The other type of work that's being done, and this this speaks to Israeli entrepreneurship. Israelis are kind of always on their feet, always trying to continuously respond as quickly as possible in the best way that they can. So what we're seeing is CEOs and founders and and folks in 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 startup in Israel basically startup country, right? Everybody's sort of rallying and everybody's trying to do their their thing, right? Whatever they can do, which is either find ways to gather equipment, send it off to people in need, raise money and use it to help some of the people that are wounded or, you know, psychologically hurt from this attack. We've seen uh, a lot of entrepreneurs here in the San Francisco Bay Area. There's a significant body of, of Israelis here also rally to the cause, trying to basically get as much equipment as much support for Israel out here. Uh, and basically everybody, like this is typical Israeli, everybody just dropped whatever they're doing and just rallied to support the country, support the soldiers at the front, and support the the people of South and Israel who have been been through this It is nightmare. amazing. I mean, we've had friends trying to uh, procure 100,000 green backpacks, armed vehicles, uh, medical supplies, you know, you name it, you know, there's a lot of uh, community efforts uh, and a lot of money obviously raised and, and shared to help uh, with the cause and the resilience effort. You know, how are your Israeli founders managing, you know, even just business continuity, which is a crazy thing to even ask, but, you know, th the country is so focused on one cause, but they still need to survive as a country as well. So how are you kind of speaking with the Israeli founders uh, who also have themselves and their co-founders being you know, drafted or, you know, called into the reserves on the front lines. 
I, I hate to say this, but the honest truth is that we're used to this stuff in Israel. It's not new. Israel has been fighting for its survival for the last 75 years. Israel is continuously at some state of war. Most of the time, it's subtle. It's in the background. And you just spend a month, a year in reserves. And you hear about this terrorist bombing and maybe somebody you know has been, like, it is continuous. So I think some of the mindset that we, when we're thinking about this from a U.S. or Canadian lens, our world is always peaceful. And then once in a while, you get 9-11 and you recalibrate. Israel is living through war and terror on a continuous basis for 75 years. So we're used to this. And we're used to constant context switching, right? So we would be, one day you'd be coding this awesome piece of cybersecurity code. And the next day you're, you know, guarding this hill as in the reserve, you know, in the IDF. And Israelis are very adopted to this. They know how to, again, context switch very quickly and support. Now, with that said, the last 10 days, 12 days have been extraordinary in that this is not some limited terrorist attack. This is an all-out war that we're seeing in Israel now. So unfortunately, that does slow down innovation and many people are and need to be focused on supporting the front line in this war. Everybody just does whatever they can and around the clock to try to do both. And that, that includes me as well, you know, as an Israeli watching this from afar. I spend four or five, six hours a day fighting for the causes I believe, getting the word out there about what has happened, and again, with a balanced view of, of things. And then I have to keep working at the same time. And psychologically, it's very, very hard. But that's what we're all doing. We're doing all those things together at once because... Not because we want to, because we don't have a right. choice. Yeah, the context switching is an interesting thought. Like they they've grown up in this context switching world. You know, it's kind of like having a tough day at work and then having a you know context switch to be you know kind and, and gentle to your screaming toddlers at home. <laughs> you know, that's like that's the basic things that you know we go through here in Canada and the U.S. But in in Israel, it's the complete opposite. It's, it's life and death context switching quite often. And, and suppressed, I think you know, like. Many on the Palestinian side, I think a lot of Israelis li are living through trauma. And when you live through trauma, you suppress the trauma. I'll tell you a story. Here's an interesting one. So my kids were born and raised in the U.S. My 10-year-old, uh, we were visiting Israel last year, and we were in Tel Aviv. Sounds like a pretty cool, safe city, and it is most of the time. And just when we were there, Hamas decided that they were going to shoot missiles at Tel Aviv. The alarm sounded. And Iron Dome shot two missiles, and we're hearing the blasts, and we're sitting in this, we're, we're in this safe area. Um, so that that's the story. But but the really important piece is what happened with my 10-year-old boy at that time, who's born and raised in the U.S., and he's like looking at me and saying, Dad, what the hell is going on here? They want to kill me? They're shooting missiles at me? Why? And it took us 12 hours to calm him down. And he had to live the background of, you know, Israel is going through war and blah, blah. So just think about what my 10-year-old went through. All the kids in Israel live through that every day. They already know. They've already suppressed all that pain, all that trauma. They're basically all in some state of PTSD. Okay? They've all gone through these traumas. And in a way, they have mechanisms, suppression mechanisms, that help them push this fear of dying here and now aside. So they can focus on the task at hand. 
it's really part of the Israeli DNA, unfortunately, at this stage. And it's not something that, you know, us out here are used to. No, absolutely. To. I, you know, completely. I've seen that firsthand, obviously, from friends of mine and friends who have been living in Israel and coming back and telling me about all the friends that they work with or the crazy founders that they interacted with. You know, but maybe you can share some insights. You've talked about, the, obviously, the VC group that we're a part of. What advice or what sort of message do you want to give to the international investment community and also the founders and entrepreneurs in the US and Canada who may just not be um, fully reacting to the situation? So first of all, as I said, we're not okay. If you know Israelis, if you know Jews that have ties to Israel, they're not okay, to be clear, because they went through an equivalent of a 9-11 and steroids. That's one. The second thing is, even if you support the two-state solution, even if you recognize uh, that Israel has made mistakes over the years treating the Palestinian people it's a long-standing history. I don't want to go into that. Both sides share the blame in many ways. That's my personal view, right? Even if you do all that, you should still condemn the vile terrorist acts that Hamas has done. And if you don't, you need to get your moral lens fixed. You're missing a very big point here because there is no justification for pure evil, pure terror, the killing of kids, seniors, unarmed civilians in their homes. There is no justification to do that. And I want to be very clear when I say that Israel does not partake in the same. I'm not saying that there aren't civilians that were unfortunately killed and injured over the years due to Israelis' attacks. But that is not the intention. The Israelis are not trying to kill unarmed civilians. And the Hamas here, which is a terrorist organization, clearly flagged as a terrorist organization by the U.S., U.K., almost every major Western country recognizes that the Hamas is a murderous terrorist organization. Not condemning what they've done is a big moral mistake. And justifying those terrorist attacks by saying that they're justified because of what the, the Palestinian people have gone through is also unacceptable. Yeah, well, we're seeing the backlash, obviously, you know, stateside with all these uh, universities, obviously, promoting uninformed or unbalanced perspectives on these complex issues, which they are very complex issues. But again, not coming out and speaking, you know, e even the truth or condemning the horrible atrocities committed by Hamas is something that we just can't stand for in, in North America, both from the government side and from the institutions and the uh, education system. So, how do you see the role of these universities, you know, in the future if they can't even get their moral compass right? I don't want to mix this up with the wokeism movement, and I have some thoughts about that, but I won't try to, I don't want to mix the two. I think some of our universities here in the U.S. have lost their way. They've lost their way on multiple fronts, where this concept of wokeism that we've gotten to a point where the philosophies that our kids, our university kids are being taught are really about the weak or the unprivileged is the always right. The underdogs are always right. Even if they could bloodily murder in a terrorist attack, they're, they have a right. You can justify that they're doing what they're doing. And that is, again, a complete moral bankruptcy in my mind. It's a complete moral bankruptcy. And I, I think any human being that has 
love of other humans, humanity, and a decent moral lens would look at the atrocities done here and say, you cannot justify, you cannot support this. And the fact that universities and faculties are not standing up at this time to say the right thing really reflects on how we've lost our North Star in universities. And, and I want to mention one thing that we've done. I went uh, to um, Haas, the Haas School of Business at Berkeley to get my MBA back in the day. And the acting dean there uh, initially had this very vague email sent out to alumni, very vague response saying, oh, we're so sad about the loss of life on all sides. Obviously, everybody is. But they forgot to condemn the vile terrorist acts that Hamas has done. And, you know, we put together a group of hundreds of Haas alumni, including non-Jewish, just people that have a moral lens, that have a moral North Star, saying, what the hell is wrong with you? And I'm so proud to say that the acting dean has actually corrected her initial email and sent a follow-up condemning the terrorist acts of the Hamas. I'm so happy. I think this is a turning point in public opinion where, I'm sorry that I'm saying that, but some of the hippie folks who are disconnected and don't understand what's actually actually happening on the ground are going to watch some of those videos and understand that Hamas is ISIS. And if you're supporting or justifying what they've done, it's basically the equivalent of supporting and justifying 9-11. Can you justify 9-11? I bet well, you can The can't. irony about it is the people who are supporting or not condemning uh, you know, Hamas and the terrorist organizations are the ones who want them killed. Who ones uh, don't want them to exist in the first place? So we're talking about like a lot of minority groups. We're talking about a lot of people uh, of different ethnicities or you know sexual orientations. These people who you know have the freedom of speech are uh, supporting an organization that would not support them. You know, one group that really negatively surprised me. I didn't think it would go that far. Is Shocking. the BLM. I mean, I can't say that I'm a big supporter of the BLM, but at least I understand. Their guiding principle, like even the core of like Black you Lives Matter, you can of relate course, to it. you can relate to it. So how does a, an organization that focuses on preserving life, you know, stand on the side of supporting those atrocities done by Hamas? They have lost their way. Somebody needs to call them out. And not just that. Some of those woke movements have gone way too far to the point that they've lost their realization of reality. And I think, I think this is a great time for us to wake up and kind of focus on, on the facts and what's actually happening on the ground and find our moral Just North before Star. we kind of move into the sort of factors we think that can contribute to a lasting, you know, sustainable peace in the region, because we don't know what the next, you know, 30 days will hold. But do you think where a lot of these large donors in the U.S. who have finally, you know, stepped up and said, we are not willing to support these types of institutions given that we have been the ones supporting these very privileged institutions will make a difference? I think they can. And I think we should absolutely try. There's no other way. If you want to truly stop anti-Semitism, from my point of view as an Israeli, those two are disconnected. I'm not saying that Palestinian is anti-Semitism. And like, I mean, one Palestinian friend told me, you can't blame us on what happened with the Nazis in the 40s. And I don't. I think those are two disconnected things. But here in the U.S. and Canada, those things are getting injured. It's basically this notion of like 
people are increasingly supporting anti-Semitism and going up against Jews because of their beliefs about what Israel is doing in Israel and Palestine. I think that's a very dangerous path for communities here in North America. We should untangle that relationship and we should not let those people who tangle those two together and basically call for anti-Semitism. I, should, I don't think we should let them well, because you don't know who they come for next, right? And and that's the the scariest thing about history. It doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it rhymes very often. So I want to ask you, though, you know, before we wrap things up, where do you see factors that could play into some form of lasting and sustainable peace in the region, if that is even a hope and a dream? I know that's something right now we can't really think about because there's so much more to accomplish. But you've been a part of this saga for a very long time through many generations in your family who have tried to to form peace in the region. Do you think it's something that we will see in our lifetime? Well, clearly what's happening now is horrific. It is horrible. But I think there is some opportunity that the world will have more clarity about what's happening now. And I actually want to, I want to answer by going first through a little bit of a strategic view and then going back to answer your question. So people have to understand that Iran is pulling all the strings here and China and Russia are behind it. Now, what the Iranians are doing is horrible. They're not sacrificing their kids for the survival. The, the Iranian cause is really about the survival of the Utah regime. And the way for the Utah regime to survive is by fueling the Israeli-Palestinian cause. You have to understand that. That's what gives them stability back at home. Hatred for Israel is one of the reasons their regime is intact. Okay? Fact number one. Fact number two, Hamas and Hezbollah at Lebanon are basically both proxies. So what are those Iranians doing right now? They're sending off the Palestinian kids to die instead of sending their own kids so their regime can survive. It's the utmost form of evil, and we need to call them out. And if the Hezbollah continues to fight, like they have been fighting over the last few days, there have been several missiles shot, Israelis wounded and killed from on the border with Lebanon, which is where we're all fearing it will burst into an all-out war with Lebanon. The destruction of Lebanon, in my opinion, is very much tied to the Hezbollah, which is backed by Iran, funded by Iran, Bay a big part of the reason that the country is basically destroyed. And I feel bad for my Lebanese brothers. And if Iran sends the Hezbollah to fight Israel, continue to fight, escalate. Lebanon, Israel is going to devastate Lebanon in so many ways. And the Iranians have all this blood on their hands. We have to be clear. Those are proxies. If you're looking at a more permanent solution, I think it's twofold. First of all, the recognition that we need to have a two-state solution. And even though, and I got to be clear here, Palestinians have never had a country. Not during the, the British mandate, not before that. They never had a country. It's okay. They should have a country. I think most Israelis support that. I've, I want to be clear with our listeners. Most Israelis want peace, and they're perfectly a-okay giving land to Palestinians so they have a country. The vast, vast majority of Israelis support that. It's just there's nobody to talk on the other side, and Hamas is basically is founded in the notion that you have to kill Israel and all Israelis. That is their founding notion. It's in their articles, right? 
So who do you want to talk with? Do you want to talk with somebody who's like their only purpose is to kill you? It's hard, right? So so I think again, two folks, two state solution. Now is the time to accelerate that. And we gotta figure out what, what to do with this Iranian regime. They're the source of a lot of this evil, and they're backed by Russia, semi-backed by China. To be clear, the Iranians are producing drones used by Russia against the Ukrainians. These guys are on the same side, and we're letting all this stuff happen. So I don't want to necessarily see this war extended to Iran, but I think this is a great opportunity to remind the world what we're facing here and find ways to dismantle this evil regime who is sending Palestinian kids to their death in order to for them to survive as a regime. That's how bad yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, super complex issues, but very cut and dry almost if you just sort of take a 10,000-foot view of exactly like the who's pulling the strings and who they're putting on the front lines to do their, their dirty work. Uh, it's quite clear. Is there anything else you'd like to add or share that we haven't covered in our discussion today, Itamar? The listeners here should, again, recognize a few things. This is a 9-11. Most Israelis strive for peace, and they they are not... 99% of Israeli soldiers, civilians, would not support the killing of civilians in any shape or form, including after this horrific attack. It's sometimes hard to see. You get a lot of rumors. You get a lot of misinformation. But most Israelis are actually liberal, unorthodox folks who just want to live peacefully alongside their Arab neighbors. There's 2 million Arabs living in Israel. We backed out of Gaza in 2006, left it to the PLO. Then Hamas took over in 2007 and basically has kidnapped the Gazan Strip and made it into a terrorist nest that hides behind civilians. It's a horrible, horrible situation. And I'm not saying Israel doesn't have blame in this, but please recognize or the propensity to do good from pure evil. Stand on the side of Israel in making a clear distinction between what's right and what's wrong. And you can do that even if you support the Palestinian cause and the two-state country. I think that's the main message that I want to send, kind of summarizing all together. And if you don't, look deep into your heart and think about what you would do if your family of unarmed civilians, somebody knocks on their door one day, breaks down the door, kills their kids in front of their eyes, kidnap the parents, and then burn down the house and walk away. How would you react? That's what Israel is going to yeah, now. Check your moral compass for sure. You know, Itamar, I, like I said, this isn't a traditional podcast we do here at Tank Talks, uh, but I thought it was very important that we host this conversation today. Uh, and I really uh, appreciate you taking the time and sharing your personal and obviously very hard story to share with our global community of listeners. So thanks again for joining us in the tank today with Itamar Novik. Thanks for having me, Matt. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talks. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. First, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. Next, follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague who'd benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Talks engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, keep disrupting and innovating.